This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or like sort of understatement or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3 Triple R's weekly discussion of big picture issues and local ground up solutions um that means from the ground up not uh large bits broken up into little bits anyway bushy's my name and as always in the studio the wonderful co-conspirator uh for whom i've not written any kind of long-winded intro tonight adam grubb that's a it's a relief i spent the day in the chook pen mucking around with their watering system my brain's all sort of cluck buck eggs Mm. um and i just I couldn't do it. I was trying at them. I really tried to make something no, no, that would honour It takes you. a while to get into the mind of the chicken to honour the chicken, and I don't. It's not something you can just pick up and leave lightly. The For the next the three or four days, you'll just be yeah. focused on worms, yeah. grubs <laughs> yeah. at each end. Uh, but joining us on rotation again is stunt car tester, amateur potter, and home butcher Peter Christensen. How are you, Peter? Thank you, uh, Bushy. Uh, I'm good, thanks. You're actually none of those things, are I'm none of those things, but I could see some of those things in my future, absolutely. Uh, let's go amateur potter. Yeah, yeah you why take not? That on. Yeah. So you were saying off air you were such an amateur potter that you have, in fact, never, ever attempted pottery. Never, ever attempted, although, come to think of it, I think I might have made an ashtray or something in primary school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think everyone <laughs> at school made an ashtray. <laughs> I don't think they make ashtrays at school anymore somehow. I know. It used to be a great thing that like, no matter what project you were doing, you could put a groove in it and say that's where grandma can rest her singing. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I had a billy cart ashtray. It was wonderful. <laughs> uh, the bicycle master whisperer, an all-round legend, smooth operator of the panel, Jed McCartney. Evening all. Uh, tonight on the show, we will be talking housing, co-housing, share housing, multi-generational housing, the home office, and uh, all uh, manner of things new and changing in the um, housing sector with Kalia Coulson, um, Managing Director of Sanctuary, which is Australia's premier magazine dedicated to sustainable home design and sustainable architecture. And it's put out by the uh, Alternative Technology Association. You will know her as one of the presenters over the last seven years of The Grapevine on Monday mornings, uh, a show she's been doing, uh, I think, for all of those seven years and uh, now co-hosts with Dylan Bird. We kick off each week with a bit of a chat about what we've been looking at, what's caught our eye. Um, Why don't you kick off tonight, Peter? Sure, okay. Um, So what's caught my eye this week was uh, something from The Age. Uh, This is no ordinary drill. Imagine disaster to transform North Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, it was a show that was on last weekend. Uh, I don't. I didn't. I tried to look up some reviews on how it went, and I couldn't find anything. But it sounded pretty amazing to was me. Was it a disaster? Well, <laughs> bubble. <laughs> I hope not. I hope it went really well. So the idea. It's this kind of participatory p- 
performance. So it's not just a show, but, you know, the idea is that uh, everyone's involved. We're, we're making it together. Uh, it says, an imagined flood disaster will transform the North Melbourne Town Hall into a working emergency relief centre. Uh, and they, I imagined, uh, it started at like two o'clock in the afternoon and went through to the next day. So I'm not sure whether it was overnight. I'm kind of imagining yeah, right. all these people in sleeping bags, you know, sleeping over at the North Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, but it says, alongside emergency services, six artists will lead a range of sometimes unusual activities, including rabbit skinning, shelter building, rationing, search parties and campfire yarns. I mean, how fun does that right sound? <laughs> the aim is to get people thinking and prepared for climate-induced disaster while connecting them with others in their neighbourhood. How um, good is this? I know. How good is it? <laughs> I'd really love to hear how it went from someone. Uh, it, says, it goes on to talk about how some of the inspirations for the artists was uh, this cookbook from um, uh, a woman from 1897, Wilhelmina Rawson, who did the first Australian cook and laundry book. Uh, and it says, not flustered by scarcity of traditional meats, Mrs Rawson devised and published recipes for bandicoot, flying fox, goanna and ibis. In her recipe for stewed ibis, she explained that the bird's objectionable odour could be overcome with the right preparation. It was cooked in tomato and onions and served with slices of lemon. Wow. Possibly more objectionable these days that they they hang out at garbage tips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How tasty is a seagull? uh, It says they wanted to kind of do this ratatouille with an emphasis on rats, but they, you know, actually, I don't know whether they could pull that one off. Um, Jeez. But, yeah, I just loved the idea of this event and, um, you know, this idea of kind of making stuff together that we're Mm. kind of exploring these ideas. This is is painful you're telling us about it after it happened. I know, I know, it really is. It reminds me a little bit of, um, I think South Park took the piss out of it a little bit once. Those um, uh, they, they used to do the training drills in the US and that for uh, atomic uh, bombs dropping, you know, like drop and, yep. and duck and cover or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. But that, this is an interesting thing to consider because um, this kind of does bring the fun about, I suppose, <laughs> disaster relief can be fun. Um, but this is a thing that probably does need to be talked about to some degree, like, you know, uh, emergency scenarios and so forth. If we are, as we discuss each week, sort of moving towards a, an, un, an uncertain future. Yeah. Uh, um, a future with uh, a, a, a deep, deep-seated need to be flexible and adaptable and and more than anything to be connected to your community. This is probably the way to do it isn't it yeah absolutely get in there and explore it together and you know if you have to eat an ibis well you know mm. you want to uh, know someone who's done it before and yeah yep and well, I, I think they went on to do some rabbit skinning the next day um and there were real real uh, emergency services you know crews there and stuff as well and i think they were really trying to kind of um make it like a, a real uh emergency relief mm. sort of station and the other interesting thing about it is you know it came about one of the reasons it came about is they realized that uh the north melbourne town hall is an actual you know like if there was an emergency that would be a, a relief center yep mm. apparently sulfur crested cockatoo is quite good if you um roast it with a lot of lemon in it oh I've, yeah there's, there's been... a theme with the lemon well, lemon brings flavour to all things. It's just. true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just... Hey, Adam, do you want to go next? Move on, move mine, on. Mine kind of comes out of yours in a strange Oh, way. yes, yes. Well, uh, so I was reading an article <clears throat> on a different tack, but relating a little bit to tonight's topic, which we're going to be talking about housing. It's called The Problem of Reinforced Concrete, and it was on the conversation last month. 
And the author guy, Kuhlemans, he points out that the Pantheon in Rome is the world's largest unreinforced concrete dome and is in excellent condition after nearly 2,000 years. Whereas most of our concrete infrastructure built from the last century are already crumbling. And the difference is the fact that what we do now is reinforced. So we put steel in, in our concrete, which makes it cheaper and easier and faster to, built, to build. And I think it's some kind of cosmic, uh, miraculous coincidence that steel and concrete happen to shrink and, s- and swell with temperature at the same rate. Like yep. you can't use copper or anything else. Just steel happens to work. Mm. On the flip side... It rusts, yeah. and so small cracks get in there, mm-hmm. and uh, it rusts and it expands four times its size, and that's what we call the concrete cancer. Mm. And in the early 20th century, you know, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright and all these iconic builders and everybody didn't realise that this was going to be a problem. Mm. And so now we're sitting on masses and masses of infrastructure. Uh, the writer Robert Corland estimates in his book Concrete Planet that the repair and rebuilding costs of concrete infrastructure just in the United States will be in the trillions of dollars just to maintain what's already there. And uh, this author of this article is saying, well, actually, maybe we should be exploring more things like mud brick and rammed earth, which actually may be more durable, surprisingly enough, than the reinforced concrete. Yep, exactly. And... The con- concrete, uh, he points out, is the third largest contributor to carbon dioxide emissions after automobiles and coal-fueled power plants. Uh, yeah, right. I didn't think of- it was that high. Some years ago I read that it was sort of contributed about 5 to 10% of carbon emissions in its manufacture. This is Well, yeah, that's right. That's also stated here that cement manufacturing alone is responsible for oh, roughly okay. 5% of global CO2 emissions. So that... Depends how you cut the cake into categories, but in the categories they've used here, it's the third largest contributor and also represents a third of all landfill waste. And so with all this infrastructure, which we're putting on to future generations to maintain is both uh, monetary and an environmental cost. Mm. So if we can figure out ways of making it last longer, uh, better for everyone involved, there are a few things besides the aforementioned going back to earth building such as like hooking a battery up to it which stops it rusting i don't know how practical that is on the home scale or anything, <laughs> not much no having a current running through it yeah but that's because a lot of those uh buildings at the turn of the century i think it's the there's that famous photos of the frame of the empire state building mm. and that's all steel but it's not uh it's not sh- shrouded in concrete it's a steel frame building mm. incredibly strong and incredibly yep. durable but um so uh, well, I mean, if you can see it you can maintain it i guess the problem yeah. is when it's hidden behind the concrete and you don't see it until it's too late and the concrete mm. cracks away i used to teach this as a topic i mean this this sounds pretty dull if you as a topic i used to teach for apprentices but the the issue often with concrete is that um as, as, as good as you can, as well as you can possibly do it, when you vibrate it, you push all the air bubbles out of it and all these sorts of things, at some stage you are going to get sulfates in there, salts. So that, especially concrete that's uh, in contact with the ground, all soils contain some degree of salts and as soon as they start to draw any of the moisture in from the surrounding ground, they'll bring salts in, that will oxidise mm-hmm. the steel and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's what kick-starts this entire process and it's really almost impossible to stop once it starts. Um, but yet, as you say... We're talking here about the Pantheon, which is a 1,900-year-old... It's a 1,900-year-old building, yeah. But the rammed earth thing's interesting because in parts of Morocco, there's rammed earth buildings that are 
even older than that, maybe yeah, true. four thousand years, and there was no cement present in that construction. So, yeah, it's a pretty interesting article. I, mean, I actually geeked out a little bit about this because it took me back to the old TAFE teaching days. I didn't know this about your history. <laughs> yeah, teaching people about concrete chemistry, concrete chemistry and stuff. Yeah, not from the perspective of having uh, studied it as an engineer, but just mm. from using it a lot. Um, I was quite uh, gobsmacked years ago when I went out and started my own business in about 04 and I ended up on a lot of projects around different suburbs with concreters and I was staggered and before anyone starts ringing up and abusing me I was I don't mean every oh, single because concreter. you're about to say something worse than eating a cockatoo okay go for it go for it <laughs> no no <laughs> there's, just, be there's just a lot of concreters out there and day to day they work with concrete and yet they actually don't understand the fundamentals of how it works and how it reacts and so that always blew me away but um, your article is very cool, Adam, and it led me on to this thing. There's a website called citymetric.com, and they had an article called, and I've just put it up before, so sorry if you guys haven't had a look at it. It's nine building materials made entirely from waste products. Mm-hmm. Those waste products include newspaper and wood, newspaper wood, sorry, newspaper turned into wood. So they've taken newspapers, rolled them up, and put a solvent-free glue through them to make something similar to wood. They've got nappy roof tiles which is uh, nappies and other sanitary products uh, separated from the biological waste and turned roof tiles. They've got recycled blocks using really? compressed plastic <laughs> bags. They've got a blood brick. Maybe, because uh, you, you know brick. some of them in the mud renders and in the earth building, they yeah. mix a bit of uh, cow manure through it, which yeah, acts as a binder. So well, maybe, maybe washing it is like... The nappies is is probably not might not be the best strategy. Well, leave, maybe leave the poo in, leave yes. the protein yeah. there. Bottle yeah. brick. What do we got? We got bottle bricks, um, smog insulation, mushroom walls. I think we touched on mushroom walls in the past. Plasphalt and wine cork panels. It's a pretty lightweight article, but it, it was something that I went looking for after I read your article and thought, well, if the future is going to be full of all this busted ass old infrastructure, what will we be able to do to reuse? these bits and pieces we've got. So it could be that landfill sites and rubbish tips become the source of the next mining boom, mm. although not necessarily one that will create billionaires, but one that will just be utilised to extract raw and discarded resources like plastics and so forth. Or, and or the tyres for the earth ships Tyres well. for earth ships, yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's something we should touch on at some stages mm. of the earth ship building. Is it Michael Shepard? Is that his name? Reynolds. Michael Reynolds in the US. Houses made from waste. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R, and tonight we're delighted to be joined by Kelly Coulston, who you know her voice already because she is one of the presenters of The Grapevine, which is possibly the most professional show on Triple R, so it's, <laughs> I'm only so. mildly nervous. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she, you're here representing tonight Sanctuary. I am. I work. My day job is yeah. um, out of Triple R. It's a, it seems like a, this is where I normally am, but actually four days a week I hang out at the ATA and I'm the editor of a green building magazine called Sanctuary. Mm. Um, which I understand is the described as Australia's premium magazine de- dedicated to sustainable home design and sustainable architecture. Yeah, it's, it's been going a, for a while. It's been going yeah. for 10 years-ish. And, mm. um, yeah, it, the big focus is sustainable building materials, mm-hmm. um, environmental design and um, gardens and, I suppose, trying
trying to pull all that together with better energy use. So it's the whole picture. It's not just, mm. you know, not just house and garden. It's it's how we run them and what we use to build them and, and all those things put together. Yep. Well, that's that's convenient because that uh, those are very much the topics we'd like to discuss this evening. Although we're going to take a little bit of a perspective on it of <laughs> the human side of using buildings and cramming more people into less space. How's that sound? Sounds perfect because right. um, that's absolutely what I've been focusing on, I suppose, as, especially with affordability changes in mm. um, Melbourne and other cities where we actually need to do more with less space, more yeah. people, less space. Well, I looked up some stats because Australia, as it turns out, has the most average residential floor space per capita. So it's just more space per humans than anywhere in the world we have 89 square meters per person of house the uk has 33 so we're almost three times as much as uh as our uk colleagues people that live in houses over there which most of them do like here and um why is that important from an environmental perspective well if you look at the greenhouse emissions nearly 12 percent of of our the our embodied co2 in our lifestyle comes from the buildings that we inhabit not counting running them just building them and that's actually a lot that's more than our the environmental impact of our transport so i think what you're doing is uh fantastic to be focusing on this so what what are some of the major ways that we can address this problem in broad brushstrokes and then we can like let's talk about the ones that don't involve just squeezing more people into less space like what are the other ways we can do it i think firstly? if you look at trends in design uh environmental um sort of <coughs> uh, best case scenarios and actually the way that design is going are coming together so mm. i think smaller buildings smaller spaces are actually quite mainstream now mm. and uh especially as we're seeing the cost of housing go up uh, i think more people are you know, forced to, but also more willing to trade off a large house and a large block of land to be mm. closer to where they work or closer to where they have recreation or friends or family. And so that we're actually seeing uh, the kinds of things that we would promote in, in green building, which is smaller in size because it's less space to heat and cool, less mm. materials to build. Uh, <coughs> recycling, um, the building materials you... is actually becoming a, a, a lot more common thing. People are finding it very attractive. People like materials with character. So yeah. I, I think we're seeing mainstream tastes and uh, what you would kind of call classic sustainable building coming together. So from my perspective, uh, I I really don't think most people think that a really large rambling house in the suburbs is what most people want anymore. A lot of people are willing to live in smaller spaces closer to to transport. They can can feel so soulless. I actually have, on the weekend, I went back and found the farmhouse that I grew up in which is a 140-year-old tiny little thing with a three-room extension that my parents built in the 80s. And uh, it's now in a cul-de-sac surrounded by other houses that are new. And I was really lucky because they invited me in. um, And I had to try not to cry in front of this big truck driver um, because it brought back all these memories. And he was looking at the hue and... He was showing me off the hue and pine boards and he was in love with the house. He loved it so much and I was so grateful. Mm -hmm. And um, then you walk out again into this uh, court with these 
um, huge soulless places, and it was. Uh, and I think size is a part of that. Mm. There's a it, like small. I mean, I, I like a little bit of space, but um, there's there's something about like it is a lonely feeling being a small yeah, person in a big also space. That we, I mean, we have. You know, a lot of people are in large houses and, and maybe they used a lot of the rooms before. You know, perhaps it's an older couple and they used to have lots of family members living with them and no longer mm. do. But to, to sell that house and leave, often you, you're forced to leave the suburb or the community that you live in because there's not necessarily smaller houses nearby that you can trade off and move to. So what we're seeing now is people are often sort of stuck with large housing because of where they want to live. And um, there's a whole lot of thinking going on around this. Like I know there was a, a councillor in, in Fremantle, um, Sanctuary is a national magazine. Um, there's a councillor in Fremantle I spend a lot of time talking to and they're trying to find a way to be able to divide up really large houses. So there's a lot of houses in, in Frio and in the Perth area that are sort of heading towards 400 square metres in size. And that, you know, a, a house in, in Carlton, a smaller house in Carlton might be 100, 120 square metres. Mm. So you could divide it into two mm. or three or four different parts. But because of things like, you know, fire protection and and all these things it's actually quite hard to divide one title Mm. into four in that way but they're trying to find ways to do it because old people and young want to live in that area and there's nowhere for them to go and there's no land left because it's a port town so what do you do and i think these creative um opportunities are there and and smart people are looking at them Mm -hmm. Mm. i've I've got friends who did that years ago they bought a very very big house deliberately with the idea to cut it in half and um put the parents at one end and then down the track the parents came to their they came to the end of their life and now they've got another family renting that end of the house and if you think about that you've got now two houses and all it took was a couple of bits of framing timber, a little bit of the rerouting of the electricity and some plasterboard, as opposed to the phenomenal amount of... I, mean, I was talking to Adam about this just earlier today. When you, The bigger a house is when, during the construction phase, the more incidental offcuts are there. And I've worked on a number of building sites over the years, and it's, it's those little things like you know the five-inch wide strip of silver foil that was cut off and nothing was done with it and so it's piffed in the bin and and an offcut of pipe here and a, a, and a little bit of broken tile there and all that sort of stuff which all adds up but if you can actually retrofit this housing stock it it massively diminishes that yeah, waste and, and there's some really great opportunities like i think when i was saying about you know people looking for smart solutions all around australia and, and victoria actually is lagging weirdly in this but uh, state governments are legislating to change planning laws and and I've looked quite closely at this and uh, you, you're now in New South Wales and, and Western Australia and parts of Queensland, ACT, you can have what's called small secondary dwellings, so essentially mm. granny flats yep. in your backyard and you can rent them to anybody, whereas in Victoria you can have a granny flat but you need to have a dependent person, someone who's dependent on the, the residents of the main house living in that granny yeah. flat. And once that dependency relationship ends, for whatever reason, the teenage kids move out or whatever, you need to remove that granny flat and send it back, sell it. You know, you, you can see on, on, on Gumtree there's heaps of you know, portable buildings for sale. Whereas in New South Wales, they really could see that that... Um, requirement is there so a small space a, a student could could rent it or um, a lot of couples older couples are uh, moving into the backyard and renting their main house out to somebody mm. else and so you've got all these different creative solutions uh, to use space better than we are but 
I mean, what people are, are saying to me is that design is essential because there's things like privacy, um, tree coverage. You know, yeah. if you're building on on urban blocks, um, cutting all the trees down is not a good outcome either. Mm. So good design, sensible design is really required to make and, all this work. And if we had good design in the first place, you know, like if we did, it is such a big investment making a house. Uh, and if we thought about, you know, those stages of life and, you know, could be a bit more flexible in the design of those houses in the first place um you know then that'd be a great outcome wouldn't it you know and, and i think also there's opportunities with small dwellings and and you know i've, I've been uh joining a couple of sustainable builders and advocating for uh, a change in in laws in victoria to allow these kinds of dwellings to be in place but you could also ask you know require that they're high star energy ratings because that cuts down running costs but also that they're fitted out for um, disability because in so much housing in existing housing doesn't have access for people that that um, are aging Mm -hmm. in place or uh, need you know rails or wheelchair access and things like this so there's this opportunity to look uh, at our urban areas differently and uh, you know I think a lot of people are building studios where they're working from home and, and using these spaces during the day but often mm. you know some suburbs just empty out mm. Mm. people leave them and the housing is there and it's not used all day till the evening and I think um, you know the smarter cities are actually trying to make better use of existing infrastructure rather than having to build mm. new roads for new suburbs why not have new housing in new suburbs that you don't have to build the roads. It's just heaps cheaper. Mm. Yeah, biggest houses in the world and we only come home in the evening and turn the TV on. Mm. And well, we work look. a lot to pay for them too. Yeah. It's, and we have affordabil- to drive really far to yeah. get home. And, mm. and affordability is driving a lot of this change. Like I like to think of that, that everybody wants to do the right thing by the environment. And look, a lot of people do, but mm. it's actually, you know, medium rents in, in Melbourne are now $400 uh, a week, you know, and and housing. I mean, I don't even know what the ho- median housing price is, is anymore. But mm. it's incredibly expensive to live in this city. So yeah. finding ways that you can have smaller dwellings in well located areas makes sense to me. Mm. And it's kind of you know that's what happens in other cities and other places, isn't it? Where you know the life happens outside of the home. So everything's not just driving to your big house, you know, far away from the city centre, um, where you're just your insular with your family, but you're actually, you know, in a dynamic city where you, you might not actually spend all that much time at home. You might be out, you know, doing things in the community. Mm. And I think and sharing space, I think uh, this is something that does happen with busy cities. You get better at it. Mm. And yeah. I think that my, I mean, I, I researched, you know, uh, secondary dwellings for the latest issue of Sanctuary and, and really cast my net wide all over Australia to find good examples of it. And there's some pretty impressive designs out there, but uh, the ones that don't work are just crappy boxes chucked out the backyard and and they they don't work but the ones that really do work are built to suit the block don't cut the trees down allow privacy for people that live in the backyard dwelling and the front dwelling so you can come together in a shared space or you can 
um, you know, close off and have private space. And having all of those different elements together seems to be what is needed to make it work. It's not going to work on all sites. Yeah. It's not going to work in all suburbs and for all people. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, your article is uh, fantastic, the one in the latest issue of Sanctuary, because this this granny flat sounds like the daggiest thing possible, but... I know. The d- they call them grannyless granny flats. Right, yeah. But th- <laughs> That's some- not really cool either. It's kind of nothing <laughs> granny about those uh, <laughs> dwellings in that article, are they? They're very funky. stylish, yeah. 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 Where's the doily? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grannies are funky. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, look, they're, they're called granny... I mean, that's just colloquial, isn't it? But um, they're called granny flats because usually it's multi-generational living that has led to mm. these kinds of dwellings being in the backyard. But yeah. uh, I think, you know, if you look around the world, there's lots of cultures where there's family compounds and mm. it's normal to live with multi-generations. Um, but, you know, friends of mine in Sydney and designers in Sydney where this kind of dwelling is becoming more popular really than anywhere else, probably driven by their crazy uh, housing and rental prices, uh, they're seeing all sorts of different scenarios for why people want to share space and share a yeah. block. It's not just yeah, just for ageing parents. It's often it's often adult children and the grandchildren moving back mm. is is a very huge use for these spaces. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not exactly you know if you tell somebody you oh, I still live at home or something, it's not going to be great for going out on dates and someone who's built their 500 square meter grand design eco house (laughs) has got a lot you know they're going to be more popular but if you look at the eco footprint it's it's the guy that stays home and smokes dope and plays video games (laughs) never moves out he is an environmental hero i should have quoted you in the article adam (laughs) i love that it makes me feel so much better about my early 20s But it's all. I mean, you can create. You know, you can you can turn this as a positive. I mean, we putting another small secondary dwelling on a property. There's some problems that uh, come about. I mean, it becomes another solid surface. So with rainfall and then where is that water going downstream? That's something to consider. But it also becomes, um, you know, can. It can be a point to capture water. It can be another um, person that's home during the day that. I mean, Adam and I often discuss the show before the show and we chatted today about um, the importance in share housing or um, intermingled housing of maybe the holistic management of decision-making. So if you're getting someone in, and and an example of of a guest we had on the show a few weeks ago was Stephen Pepper. He lives in a second house on on a dwelling where he's home and works from home a lot of the time. So he deals with livestock and he deals uh, he assists with a lot of the growing of the food in the property and the general maintenance of the place so there's there's enormous opportunities for this to build community within the, the block itself and then further community you know friends that you would never otherwise meet are coming past the main house to visit someone everyone the wants to come and visit and stay at your place yeah yeah, yeah. And play video games <laughs> and smoke what was that stuff you were talking about smoke i wouldn't know yeah no me neither yeah <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're on Green in the Apocalypse on Triple R, and in the studio tonight we are continuing our conversation with Managing Editor of Sanctuary, Kelly Holston, and we were talking about all sorts of things to do with more environmental building practices and um, using those spaces more effectively. That involved maybe not moving out of home, <laughs> or uh, I'd, l- I'd love to get around to talking about share housing. I'm, 
I'm very passionate about this being something that you, you can do beyond your early 20s. Uh, but uh, you were saying while we are off air that an uh, interesting fact that we don't use our garages particularly well. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's, we're talking about small secondary dwellings and there's kind of three main types. So you've got like backyard, you know, granny flats, you've got sort of Fonzie flats that yep. are above garages and these kind of connected separate units like you were talking about, Bushy, with yep. your friends have, you know, a couple of different households of people living under one roof. So there's, there's three different kinds, but... Um, the the Fonzie flat is e. is is a really great use of space because it kind of deals with some of those issues you were, you were talking about about permeable surfaces and mm. not really you know not make, increasing the solid increasing surface the, footprint exactly yeah. right and so building above an existing um, structure like a garage can be really good and and people are doing that and doing it very well and uh, and one reason they're doing it is because a lot of garages aren't used for anything but storing people's crap in mm. them and I think the stat for for Melbourne is like one in four garages don't have cars in them. They're actually storage for other things, other objects and yeah. um, things that you don't use all the time. And so they end up in the garage and the garage ends up on the street. And yeah. so this is... Bread you know, makers. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I get, you know, I have the, the great um, privilege of being able to look at lots of people's houses and stick your beak and go and visit. And yeah. garages are really low-hanging fruit when it comes to better using space because yeah. you can convert them to, to studios. Yeah. I, I've seen people remove them all together and put down the, um, to have more garden mm. and to have storage down the, the fence line yep. uh, instead of having a whole garage taking up all that space. So, yeah, mm. it's, it's, there's, there's options it's out there. It's really strange. I've, I've, well, actually, the household I was talking about before, when I go to do work there, I go through this new housing development sort of in Gisborne, and these houses are all 18 months, two years old, you know, and you kind of see you know, the people finish the house and they move in and the car doesn't go in the garage ever. You drive past at a certain time of night and there's two blokes in high-vis standing out there drinking Coronas and behind them, the backdrop is the garage with, like, to the roof and shelves and all this crap and just all the shit in the world crammed in there. And that's a house that's only just been taken up as residence. <laughs> like, what's wrong with us? But uh, but anyway, that's that's one aspect. Adam, you want to go in the, the share housing? Yeah, yeah. I. So it seems to me like there's this common progression where people try share housing in their early 20s. They've come out of homes where parents took care of a lot of cleaning and stuff. They don't have the skills for it. You have some extravagant times, some memorable times, and some messy times, and you burn out. But it's just at the point where you're starting to actually pick up some skills and you're worn out. And, the, you know, I've been doing it now for like whoa, nearly 20 years and haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still struggling with some issues. But it, has been, it gets progressively better and better. And that's also a transition when you, if, of people living in fairly high density and just making the best of whatever building stock is available. So it's normally you're in older buildings. Whereas then people transition into larger, newer buildings. Now, if we could halt that progression, surely that is an environmental, an environmental good. It's not just you know using less building. It's like your heat, you know, you're sharing heating, um, you're sharing resources. Often there's communal uh, bulk buying activities, which works out more um, frugal as well as uh, probably more environmental. So, uh, discuss like what happened. To, you guys have all given up, right? 
with share housing. Yeah. <laughs> well, sort we of. We have families. Yeah. Fair yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I often, not at the moment, but often, you know, rent out or have, you know, students living with me and mm. things like that. So oh, I'm, awesome. I'm up for yeah. sharing spaces, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, you know, I, I suppose I have a bias towards, you know, new ideas around design and the like. And, and there are a lot of designers now, Adam, looking at all of the good things about, share housing which is mm. having smaller spaces under one roof but then kind of hiving off and giving people more private spaces mm. uh, within that so you don't you get to choose when you in, in, uh, interact you're not sort of forced to interact in the kitchen you might have your own spaces for that but you mm. might have a, a communal shared space in the middle and and more and more we're seeing you know strata developments where yeah. you know owners corporations and body corporates really people have their own private space to retreat to and mm. then there's a whole lot of communal space that is governed collectively and mm. I, I mean it's quite different to a share house there's i suppose Mundaka in heidelberg which i've been to which is that kind of model we should have them on the show sometime yeah mm. it, and i think that does sound like best of both worlds I'm because very like, things like laundries for example everybody doesn't have to have their own laundry so you yeah. can easily share a laundry facility whereas a kitchen might be something that you know you kind of feel a bit more particular about and you like you know you've left your things where you've left your things and um, but there is lots of other sort of facilities that we have in our house that we don't have to have all to ourselves yeah but but even when you're talking like oh well, this would be great if we can design these spaces i'm just i don't believe that's the future i think the future is you know, we've had a lot of people on the show talking about uh, economic challenges in the future, challenges for resource extraction to continue at its current rates. I think we have to make the best out of what's there. Mm. And if we can... What, what seems to be missing is any kind of... Uh, there's, there's no manual on how to share house. But if there was, if you could sort of jump through a few of the hoops uh, or just, you know, get, get a leg up and start off on a, on a stronger foot. God, how many metaphors did I mix there? <laughs> um, <laughs> I tripped over them. Uh, but I really do think it's, like, possibly a better way than, um, than imagining this radical redesign of our spaces mm. because I don't think we have the capacity to do it, to be frank. There's, there's a catch-20... Oh, go on, Jed. No, I was just going to say there's been a fair bit of success with uh, home share programs mm. um, with aged people and people with a disability whereby you put typically a student into a house with a, an older person or a person with a disability um, the sharer the, the student or and it's usually a younger person um, does a certain amount of domestic duties you know sort of eight to ten hours a week and they get mm. the rent free and awesome. generally both people um gain from that relationship mm. you know they, they it's mutual benefit benef yeah, yeah mutual benefit and, and i think this is where uh, I, I said right at the beginning of our conversation is that affordability is a driving mm. a lot of this change and i think when it's mutually beneficial to people to live together or share space or share a yard or share a laundry or whatever it might be people will do it if mm. it's not then I think, um, you know, maybe, I, I hate that word human nature, but maybe our tendency is to go it alone mm. um, if we can afford it rather no, we're than... we're communal beasts. We're I just, hate that we're, we're human just, nature. We're just <laughs> <laughs> well, we are communal beasts, but it has mm. to have, you know, some real chemistry and magic to, for a share house to work, mm. doesn't it? You know, like it's Do not just... I think, yeah, no, you can't no, just I, throw cause, anybody cause together. My biggest problem in the past has been inviting people I have chemistry and... Uh, the kind of people that amuse me 
to come and live with, whereas a lot of the most functional <laughs> shared yeah, houses. Well, straight. but that's it, though. There's a recipe. There is a an actual where, recipe. Yeah, yeah. yeah where, where oh, we are not necessarily best of friends, yeah, but we yeah. can function together really well. And, and we have a sort of friend, working relationship slash friendship uh, based in, in this environment. And uh, it's, it's similar to the same way that you have different kind of friendships at work uh, as you do in, when you're just going out. Uh, and I value those types of friendships as much as the ones where they're people that I just have a good rapport with. And I have learnt from experience that the people who are the funniest are often the most bad at dishes. <laughs> the worst housemates. I'm, I'm really good at dishes. There, there's a thing, I, I think with share housing though as well, is it is something that's often inherently transient so that... If you know you're interviewing somebody to move into a house, and it might be a house that's been established for a couple of years, you you, can't, you might be looking at that um, from the perspective of, oh, well, this doesn't work out, we we'll just tell them to leave. And so that there's that kind of thing going on. But actually, a good example, and this would be an interesting conversation we ever wanted to follow up this particular topic is, um, I don't think you'd mind me telling Cam who does eat it. Uh, he's been living in share housing with, I think, a pr- pretty much the same group of people for a good 20-plus years, you know, and, and th- those guys certainly aren't in their early 20s anymore. But uh, that all seems to work quite well. I'd, Cam, if that's not the case for ringing, we'll adjust that <laughs> towards the end of the show. But I've also, I was going to touch on something that Jed was saying. When I did an apprenticeship years ago, I moved from um, the Dandenongs into the city and then up to the Macedon Ranges where I now live, and I boarded with my boss's dad. And that was a really good arrangement because I could not have possibly afforded to pay rent on two places, but I could afford to sort of throw him 10 bucks a night um, and do some gardening work for him. And I had these nights around the table with this fellow who he'd been like a state um, MP and a farmer and a Methodist minister. He'd, he'd had this incredible lived life. And, I mean, we just had these amazing conversations. Sometimes it would get to sort of 11 o'clock at night. We kind of go, well, we should do the dish and go to bed. And uh, I think there's something to be said for that cross-generational living that you're talking yeah. about, Jed. <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot. Um, people gain a lot from it. And, and you're right, you can do it. There's a bit of a formula and there's work that's got to go into getting the right people together. But I think too many, um, too many, particularly of our elderly people, just think, oh, no one will want to live with me, so I'll, I'll tough it out mm. until someone drags me off. And they're living in a two- or three-bedroom house um, yeah, one of our neighbours does it. You know, she's elderly. She's in a three-bedroom house by herself. It'll be mm. perfect arrangement for her. And and people like that, Jed, like when if if they did want to to invest and and build another place at the back for someone else to live in and then support, you know, run the property or do the maintenance and support them with with meals or whatever it might be. In our current, with our current laws in Victoria, you can't have that arrangement. Yeah. The, the dependent person has to be in the backyard dwelling. They can't be in the main house. And so I think these are the kinds of drivers for change. And I think the idea of also being able to have a sense of control over space seems to work for sharing. So if you can, you need a place to retreat to so that you've got you can choose when to to be social and when to interact and when not to. And that seems to work. It's when people don't have a choice and maybe that's why you know share housing can can be transient depending on the household but mm. people move on when they when they feel like they can't have that sense of of control it's a lot to um lot to unpack with this we could probably come back to this topic a few times over thanks carly for coming in this it's evening been so good mm. really you were fun. really good with the mic too Oh, you didn't need to give me instructions. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Come back anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons in correct order. My pleasure. Thank you, Peter. 
Thank you. Awesome. Uh, Adam, what's going to be on next week? Well, you wouldn't know because you're taking the week off as a, a Sarah and Kate... Yeah. Do you feel like coming in again, Pete? I'm going to be in the snow. Oh, no. <laughs> Jed. It's on me. me, mate. Uh, anyway, we're going to have a great guest. What are uh, you doing next week, it's, Kai? It's, <laughs> it's, it's a serious question. Uh, John Ferris, he's from Edible Forest Gardens. He's gonna, he is fantastic. He's going to be talking about some very unusual and exciting edible plants you have never heard of. It's, he's like the Willy Wonka mm. of wow. uh, incredible plants. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, please have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.